The American College of Real Estate Lawyers was founded in 1978. During its 45-year history, it's grown to be a national organization of more than 1,000 distinguished real estate practitioners, fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment of real estate projects. Having completed our first series of 10 podcasts with founders of the college, we continue now with interviews of iconic real estate investors who have built the companies that have shaped the industry to share reflections on their careers and predictions for the future. Today, I welcome my good friend, Len O'Donnell, president and CEO of Phineas Capital, formerly USA Real Estate, but more on that later. Len has had an amazing career starting back in DC where we first met. And I thank you, Len, for joining us today. My pleasure, Jay, nice to see you. So our goal here is to talk a little bit about your, your history and background and also get your insights on, as we were just saying, where, 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 we, where we are today in this real estate cycle. So why don't we start out by talking a little bit about you know, where you started, where you were born, your, your, your education, and how you got into real estate. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I was actually born in the Bronx uh, in New York. Um, both my parents grew up there. Um, I moved. I grew up mostly in uh, northern New Jersey um, as we moved across the river. Uh, um, stayed there till I went to uh, the University of Delaware um, uh, to, to play basketball and, and spent a little bit of time in the business school. Um, and then, um, you, you know, I went on. Actually, my first job out of Delaware was um, selling industrial chemicals. Um, I was in. Uh, I was I did training down in Dallas and then had a sales territory in upstate New York, Rochester, New York, and Niagara Falls and Buffalo and fun places like that. So, um, but I, I always knew that I would ultimately make some sort type of a move to real estate. I didn't really know where. Um, I kind of grew up around the real estate industry. My my father was a mechanical engineer and contractor. So I, I knew I wasn't going to be an engineer because I couldn't draw a straight line. But um, but all of his closest friends uh, that would always be at the house and on vacations or whatever were, were all these real estate developers. And they seemed to be kind of interesting guys who, who, who did some interesting things. So um, about a year into that uh, first job, which was amazing experience, by the way, it was just hardcore, you know, had to make six sales calls a day and drive all over New York state selling industrial chemicals, you know, chlorine and caustic soda and, and all the bad chemicals that we have to extract out of real estate properties today. Um, you know, perchloroethylene and, and all sorts of stuff. So, um, but at any event, um, I decided to make the move to real estate. Didn't really know. I knew, I knew enough to be dangerous, but didn't really know where to start. So I, um, I just kind of started researching where things were happening and, um, you know, D.C., as you know, well, that's where you and I met um, D.C. In, in the late 1980s, mid 1980s was the place to be. Um, I got in a car and I drove to D.C. and I started applying for jobs and, and I ended up getting landing a job in the brokerage business with the, uh, the, the late Winston. great Shannon Hucks. You, you know, what's that? The Carrie Winston, right? No, no. Shannon and Lux. You were Shannon, Shannon, Lux. Shannon and Lux. Yeah. Yeah. Which then merged with Long and Foster, which then merged with Bar and became Barnes Morris. 
Bardo and Foster, and then they got bought by Insignia, but I was, I was gone by then. Um, so we had a great run there and, and, you know, I was literally all, all 22 years old when I showed up there. I have friends of mine that, um, tell stories about me lying about my age so I could work out larger deals, but, uh, I, I don't, I neither, I neither confirm nor deny those rumors, but, um, yeah, so, you know, we just, but it was the perfect time, right? It was this incredible time for a young person to learn the industry. Um, you know, I think the number, if I remember correctly, between Northern Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. in like a five-year period, we built something like 100 million square feet of space. Um, you know, the, it, the east side of D.C. was on fire. Um, and in my early 20s, closed a couple of really large D.C. land transactions and, you um, you, you know, so I, I had, you know, a plan to do that for a little while and then go to business school. And to be honest with you, I just at that age was making more money than I imagined. And so I just stuck with it and um, did that until, you know, the markets cooled off a good bit, as you recall, in like 92 or so. Yep. Yep. Um, remember, you know, sitting around and realizing I wasn't necessarily going to make that much money every year in the brokerage business. Um, but then I... Um, you know, I had a chance. I had done done some work on behalf of a gentleman by the name of Dean Patronelli, um, who has for 45 years now run the Patronelli Group. Um, and uh, Dean and I sat down at I, I Ricci Restaurant in, uh, in D.C. and penciled out a future where uh, I built a little advisory firm within his real estate development company um, and then ultimately became the CFO of that company. And then later the CEO of that company and Dean and I became partners. And we had an amazing run um, from like 92, 93 until I came here to USA in 2011. So that was really the, the crux of it for me was those almost 20 years, uh, what, almost 20 years as a real estate developer. Um, and I think that that period shaped um, a lot of what I've done here at the real estate company. Yeah, so so that's exactly the question I would ask. How did that, you were a broker, you were a salesperson, right, in the industrial chemical business, then you were a broker, then you were a CFO slash developer at a time where, right, once we got past the, you know, high interest rates of 1989, right, the the, um, city and the the suburbs were on fire here. How did that, um, run shape your investment strategy and thought process going forward. Yeah, you know it was in a number of ways actually. So I, I said, I think first of all in the brokerage days, I, I think you got to see people do it really well and people do it not so well, right? And and I think that probably my biggest takeaway from those days in DC was to um, be willing to sell properties at the right time, right? To not fall in love with assets, to not, um, you know, fall in love with the fees and everything else that they generate. Uh, Because I saw a lot of guys make, you know, potentially have huge profits and then be unwilling to sell, uh, particularly in office buildings, which consume a lot of capital. And, you know, we had instant, as you know, you're on the other side of trades, you know, as we had, investors from all over the world trying to buy buildings and, and I had guys as a broker who were just, Oh, I never sell. I'm not going to sell. And, you know, they were heavily, they were highly leveraged. I mean, not crazily leveraged like happened later, but still high enough levered. And then when value started to fall and cap rates started to rise, you know, they, they ended up 
not either getting wiped out or making much, much less money than if they had taken some chips off the table. So I think it it shaped in me a belief that we should take some chips off the table when we've executed a strategy, right? And I think that was sort of the culture at USA Real Estate, you know, which is now Phineas, when I got here and we just, we built on that. And then I think, you know, when I moved from brokerage to development, Dean um, is one of the most conservative developers you're ever going to meet. You know, and so he really drilled into me, you know, the concepts of when you make money, take the money, and move on. And, you know, and we did things like we never personally guaranteed loans, right? Like those were just drilled into me that, you, you know, where I saw a lot of people and, you know, in the downturns that had guaranteed loans and what that did for them. Right. So it just built this. It sounds kind of patrician and, and old school, but, I, you know, we still live with all of those things today is. Just keep leverage at a reasonable level. Don't guarantee debt. Take the chips off the table when the plan is executed. Um, and particularly on, on assets like office buildings and others that are large consumers of capital as they cycle, if you don't have the capital, right? There's certain assets that are best owned by institutions with deep pockets, right? And if you're a developer, um, you better be able to write your side of the check uh, when the time comes. So, so those are like early lessons for me in my twenties, just getting pounded into me when I watched, you know, people that we thought were iconic sort of really get crushed uh, in downturns. Um, and, and so that just kind of shaped it. And then, you know, with Dean, I had an opportunity. I, I say I was a developer, but the great thing about my partnership with Dean is he and other people in the firm were great at building buildings that, that never particularly interested me. So what he did was gave me the freedom to, to, to handle the capital side of the business and grow the business from a, from a, you know, investor and, and capital structure side side. And so that's where I really learned that piece of the business and, and let the execution teams do their job. Okay. So, I mean, you guys invest in, almost every asset class and, you know, and we can talk a little bit about yeah. that, but yeah. so I, mean, I was gonna ask you, maybe this changes, but, but perhaps not. How, how do you um, assess when you get presented an investment opportunity for the company, how do you assess risks and rewards now? Yeah, so um, I, I think for us, and this again, sounds a little bit cliche, but for us, it's all about basis. Right. So for us, risk is we I tell people this all the time. Like we do, you, you, you know, us a bit, but for people that don't, we do we capitalize as much development as anybody does. Right. It's a major part of our business. So people think of development as risk. Right. There's a perception that construction is risky. And of course, there's risks in it. But we categorize risk as the risk of losing principle. Right. And that comes directly with basis. So. Let's take go back to 2021 and the insanity of the pricing and stuff that we were seeing in 2021 coming out of COVID. To me, the risk we would tell investors that we think the riskiest thing you could do at that point in time was buy core at historically high prices. So there's a perception that core is low risk, right? But we were building industrial and multifamily predominantly um, at 70% of 70, 75% of where assets were trading. Right. So we can manage the construction risk. We can manage even in the supply chain crisis, we can manage through construction and, and budget risk. You can't manage away paying a 30 percent premium for an asset. 
Um, you, you know, so I think that's what's coming home to roost today. So like, if you look across our portfolio, I, I'm really pleased to say that. I mean, I think I, I keep saying this. I don't, someone will find one or two to prove me wrong, but I don't know that we have a single asset in our portfolio today that would trade for less than it's underwritten exit because we were so concerned. We never bought into those values, right? So when cat, when industrial was trading, at three, three and a half cap rates, we were still underwriting to a five exit. And now cap rates may or may not be at five today, but we also are underwriting rents that, you know, obviously rents way outperformed most of our performance over the last couple of years. That's luck to some extent, but it, it correlates a bit to to the craziness that was going on in the, in the overstimulated economy. So, so I think right. that's really the key for us is just like every decision is based on how bad does it have to get against our underwriting before we lose principle? It also, you know, you, you of course accurately say that everybody thinks development is the higher risk side of the business. But when yeah. you say that the people that were now experiencing greater losses are the ones that overpaid for developed assets, it looks like the development strategy turns out to put you in a much better position. I mean, look, that's been our thesis. There's there's some great firms out there that that market themselves in exactly the opposite position. And so I'm not going to suggest they're wrong or we're right. It just it works for us. Right. If you look at because if you look at our, our performance over a long period of time, and we've done a lot. Of, I mean, this was always kind of my intuition, but we've done a lot of you know deep attribution analysis on this. And if you look at outperformance over a long period of time, I believe what drives it is never losing money, not necessarily getting the highest returns on deals, right? I mean, think about the private equity model, right? Which is, you know, people will tell you like, oh, well, you do 10 deals, two of them are a 10X, five of them are okay, and two or three of them lose money. And that produces 30 plus IRRs. That doesn't work in real estate because there are no 10Xs. Right? There's no 10Xs to buoy your performance. Like a 3X is a massive home run, right? A 2X is one five to two is, is the sweet spot, right? So you can't lose money on it one out of every five deals and, and outperform. Right. Right. So you so, have to cut the tail, you have to cut the tails off your performance. And you do that by being really conservative about basis. Right, so that that was going to be my next question. You, you and I have been around to see. I don't want to count the number of cycles, um, yeah. and, and you know, it, sometimes it cycles. Sometimes it's just you know an, a bad judgment on you know an asset or a market or whatever. So what do you do when in those few situations, right? When a asset is underperforming what the team projected? Yeah, look, it's it, it, at that point. I think there's a couple of things. One, you transition and we transition immediately into a capital preservation mode, right? And it could be a lot of reasons. I mean, COVID, I mean, frankly, you know, we, we had a pretty good run. COVID, lots of deals didn't perform because of, you know, the world was shut down for two years. Like we had, a, we don't do a lot of office. We had a couple of office buildings under construction right when COVID hit, right? So you know, they're leasing up and we're slugging it out, but they're going to be five-year lease-ups instead of two-year lease-ups, right? But the message is get them leased, get them occupied, get it sold and get our capital back, right? You, you, you can't be, 
you can't fall into that mode. And I've seen people do it where, well, you know, we'll hold this for 10 or 12 years. And hopefully, you know, if it was going to be build and sell strategy or we thought we were on a five year hold or it's in a fund that has three years left, let's just hold it for 10 years and hope it gets better. You know, for us, it's the, the word I, the, the term I've been using a lot the last 90 days has been the opportunity cost of, of illiquidity is very, very high right now, right? So if you have a chance to recapture capital and acknowledge that a particular deal might be, isn't gonna perform the way you had hoped, the question isn't, what do we do to squeeze the last dollar out of the deal? The question is, what can we do with that capital in this environment? And that's pretty intriguing, right? So I think it's, um, you know, and, and it's, and it, you run on a, on a, you know, a, a portfolio our size, it, it, it isn't like you can't look around looking to who to blame for something if, you know, rents aren't what you want them to be or cap rates moved or whatever. It's just you have to go through an honest evaluation and say, OK, you know, if we if we ride this out for a year, how much better is it going to get? Or do we make this lease deal now? Or if we're fully leased, do we sell now or do we wait a year for cap rates to maybe come down 50 basis points? And those are decisions we make every day. And we make both decisions. Uh, it depends on the asset, the market, the property type, you know, things like that. So, so like like many things in life, right? Patience is a very good uh, value to have it, here. It, yeah, yeah, it is. But it's got to be for the right reasons. Like you actually right. have to believe it. Like, you know, the old thing, hope is not a strategy. Like, give me a reason why it's going to be better a year from now. And I'm all in. If it's, well, we, we have no reason to believe rents will go up or cap rates will go down, but let's hope it does. Like then it's saying, okay, what else can we do with the capital? And, right. um, you know, so, I mean, look, fortunately we, we don't have a whole lot, uh, you know, I, I was thinking it's some of the things you might ask me and I'm not to, to be obnoxious, but we really don't have a whole lot of that. I mean, other than a handful of two or three office buildings that are sitting at around 70% least, um, you know, in, in, that were built during COVID, um, you know, industrial is, is, you know, 99% leased. Departments are great. Our, our data center business is, is doing great. So it, it's really, and that's, you know, one of the things that I, I think your listeners should be aware of is I keep telling some of our large investors to, some are really, really smart in real estate. Others don't have as much of a team and they look to us to say what's going on in the world. And I keep saying, just don't get your real estate news from CNBC. Um, you know, not to be critical of anyone, but but it's just like this this pounding on how bad commercial real estate is. The translation is they're really talking about urban office, right? Because I mean, demand and occupancy are great in in most industrial markets, in most apartment markets. Yes, we expect the incredible rent growth we've seen to slow. It needs to slow. Um, you know, there's a fair amount of supply coming in both property types, uh, particularly in a handful of submarkets. So we may see occupancies fall a bit, but th there's no train wreck coming to most of commercial real estate. This is not, as Jamie Dimon keeps saying, this is not the GFC. Let's not make it that. Um, some people seem to want to make it that. Um, maybe the Fed. <laughs> but um you know, I think if we really zero in on specific property types, what we have right now is a, is a very serious uh, transformation of the office industry. And the rest of it is 
going through a liquidity and interest rate cycle. Right. Right. We right. don't have the traditional overbuilding and oversupply and, and everything else. I mean, we've we've leased something like four and a half million feet of industrial so far this year. I mean, it's like it, the, the market really has not slowed a whole lot in that regard. And you've been uh, very strategic in your investing, not only in a small component on the office, but you're not like a lot of other companies that we all know heavily invested in urban office buildings in tier one cities. Yeah. No, almost, almost not at all. We, we own a small interest in one um, Manhattan building. Um, we, we own a preferred equity position, which is in really good shape on a great building in Chicago. Um, and then we own, um, we do have one of our funds does have a, a building in Chicago, which is hundred percent leased to a credit tenant for 13 more years, but not exactly sure that how how one would exit a building in Chicago right now. Um, but so it's it, it's it's not a headache because it's cash flowing and it's full. It is in a fund with a finite life. So trying to think about how to sell something in Chicago today is a little daunting. Uh, but that's that's really for major CBD office, that's that's it. <laughs> so we're we're kind of pleased about that. The reason it matters to me though, Jay, because people, if you people who get my investor letters and stuff know I've been writing a lot about urban office valuations. And the reason it matters is a lot of our business and certainly a lot of our clients benchmark us against the index, against the core index. And the core index is about 20%. It's about six, it's about 20, 20-25% office. It's about 15% CBD office. And I think that the valuations are just are really wrong right now. I think they're they've gr- grossly understated the decline in value in a, in a lot of those assets, and they're chipping away at it like four or five percent a quarter. Um, but I don't think they're halfway there yet. And in the meantime, the benchmark, the the, the reliability, of the benchmark suffers. That that's why it's an important issue for for everyone, even if you don't own a lot of real estate in the cities. What was your reaction to the article uh, last Wednesday in the journal, right? With the pricing of the RXR and the Blackstone sales in Manhattan, yeah. where you know, way, you know, way more than five or ten percent off of old valuation, right? Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. But that's not translating um, through to the broad appraisal process, and you know, and 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 there's lots of we've had lots of discussions about it. I mean, some people have, have even suggested, well, there's the rents, cap rates seem too low, but it's because rents are below market. I'm like, I don't know how anybody could determine. Look, I, I, I mean, I've written a lot about this, so just you haven't seen it. So I think New York is broken into three or four, even five um, layers, right? You have the premier buildings, you know, the one bandy, stuff like that. And, and I'm not the world's greatest expert on Manhattan office, but I, I know my way around, right? It, you know, that building it hasn't missed a beat, right? Rents are plus or minus 200 bucks a foot, you know, incredible rent roll, whatever. Then you have another tier that is still in that upper tier where like Park Avenue in the 40s, you know, the Plaza District, people fighting over space, rents rising, you know, I mean, we're, we're having to relocate because our building is about, is going to get torn down. And like, we're literally, we had to claw our way into new space in that, in that corridor. So when I talk about New York office, like that segment of it is, is doing just fine. And 
maybe values are pretty close to right now, right? Then there's a third segment. This is the type we own a piece of with, with RxR actually, you know, which is a building we've done the renovation, we've got the amenities. We're actually signing leases, but we're signing leases, you know, meaningfully below where we were three years ago. Um, and the building took a lot of capital. And, you know, fortunately, we bought it some time ago at a pretty good basis. But I, my guess is it's probably about what worth what we bought bought it for before all the renovations, right? You know, where it had been, you know, the value had had gone up significantly over time. I'm not trying not to give out specific information, but you know, and I think people like like Scott Reckler have been really honest and transparent about this. Um, but the in within Odyssey, the average age of a New York City office building owned by Odyssey is 65 years, right? And it, and the values have gone from a little over a thousand a foot on average to something just under 800 on average. So they are making a move, but I, I, I don't think that you could sell very many 65 year old buildings in Manhattan for 800 bucks a foot. Right, right. Particularly, not only all the reasons we've already talked about, but you've got all the issues with uh, 193 and all, all these issues that the older buildings yeah. are going to run. Exactly. Right? exactly. And, and not to mention who's going to buy them, right? So then you get into discussion with the appraisers. Well, there's no trades. So therefore, there's nothing to base it on. But like, I don't think appraisal is all about, yeah, it's all about comps, right? The, abs the absence of trades tell us something about values. But anyway, I, I don't want to make the whole thing about that. But that's my, my that's the soapbox I've been on the last couple of quarters. And, uh, you know, and, and people wonder sometimes why I'm on it because we don't we don't really own any. Um, but it's because I think the credibility of our benchmark is really important to the institutional credibility of our business, and um, and that's why I'm, I've really been focused on trying to, you know, educate people on what the benchmark needs to do here. I think it's not far off on the other property types. It's it's lagging appraisers in general. You know, I think appraisal, the broader appraisal community has has gotten to the right answer quicker on apartments and industrial than the benchmark has. But at least it's it's somewhat consistent in those areas. It, I think it's New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, where it's really uh, where it's really laggy. Right. And, you know, and Washington's got its own issues. In, yeah, it does. It does. Right? Yeah. The government hasn't come yeah. back to the so. But you've also got this, I think, unique lens because of what you did years ago with Craig and Square Mile and everything. So you, yeah. you, you're on that side of these deals. And so you know, you've talked a little bit about liquidity and you know you prep back a little bit. But you know what what kind of you know perspective do you got do you have from the lending side of the world that you're also in? Yeah, look, I think that's when you look at the evolution of my thinking, if you will, over the years having been a developer and then, then running a, you know, what has become a fairly large scale investment management platform that did a lot of development and, and other things. I, I think what Craig and I have built is, you know, what we set out to build, you know, 10 years ago when we bought an interest in Square Mile, now everything is merged together into Affinius. Um, not officially merged, I'm not supposed to say that. We're all, we operate as one platform where it won't be officially merged for a bit longer. Um, for some technical reasons, but um, I think what we set out to build, and I think we did build, is a platform that spans the risk spectrum and the return spectrum. 
right? And so what that means is we can dial up and dial down different strategies at different points in the cycles. And you kind of touched on real estate cycles earlier. And I think the problem that people get into is if they have one primary strategy, you know, they play that, they ride that horse, no matter what the weather is, right? And, and so the business becomes very cyclical as a result, right? We always hear, you know, X percent of value add or opportunistic funds never pay a promote. Well, that's vintage as much as anything else, right? So we haven't totally taken cyclicality out of our business, but the idea is at a moment like this, we have significantly dialed up our activities in credit and preferred equity and construction lending, which are, you know, generating um, what I call, you know, great risk adjusted returns, right? We're not supposed to say from a marketing standpoint these days, great returns, not great returns. But when you consider the risk correlation of what we're getting um, in those spaces, it's, it's some of the best investing we've ever done, to be honest with you. And, and it's things where, you know, this platform didn't do it, didn't even do it 12 years ago when I got here. Um, and we've significantly as much as I still am bullish long term on the fundamentals around several property types for development, we're doing significantly less than we were two years ago. I mean, we really shut down significantly in late 20, the second half of 21. We just couldn't rationalize the, you know, the yields on costs and stuff that were happening. And then, you know, obviously we all know what happened in 22 from a capital standpoint. But we're still doing, you know, industrial development, a little bit of multifamily development. We're doing a, a lot of data center development. Um, but it's it's being able to play in the capital stack and de-risk the portfolio that way that has, you know, really kept us moving this year. And then there'll be a time in the cycle where, you know, we're out, we're out Craig's out focused right now on our on our next opportunity fund, right? And we think, you know, we're starting to raise capital around that. We think there's a buying moment coming. Not a GF, maybe not a GFC type buying moment, but where we can use our structure skills and our our recapitalization skills to create, you know, outsized returns. So, um, you, you know, I think it's a good, another example where now we're going to dial up that strategy, um, and then we're already starting to think about one thing I've learned in 38 years now is that the development deals that you start when they are the hardest to start at the moment like this or soon um, are the ones that perform the best, you know, where it's hardest to get the capital, where there's very little, you know, product under construction, where you're delivering apartments or industrial on the other end of a recession. Those are the ones in my whole career that have been the, the most exciting deals. And it's the ones where capital is hugely abundant and it's easy to build the ones that perform the worst. So you got to start thinking right now of what's the next development period look like, not after everybody has already started development. And, and in that regard, what do you think, without spending much more time in office, but what, what, what do you think the implications, you know, five years out, 10 years out, are for this? And I know, I know you guys are back to the office, but let's yeah, just assume, yeah. we, had, we talked about that when we had coffee, just before you made that announcement a few yep, summers ago, yep. right? But let's just assume that three days a week is where we're going to be here for some period of time. Um, I mean, what do you think that means for demand? Um, yeah, in the yeah. 
Well, I, I, I won't go off on a tangent on this, but I don't think three days a week works for companies. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if you saw the piece in Bloomberg today where people in the financial sector say they, they'll quit if they're told they have to come back to the office every day. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's hard for me to accept. Um, you know, I, I think the energy and the collaboration and the culture that we build here with everybody back enough. Now, look, also, no, every, every company's a little different, right? This company, we've never punched a clock here. People travel a lot. No one's ever asked the question if you want to work at home because your kid's got something going on that day or whatever. We've always been a pretty relaxed culture around that. But generally speaking, you're here, you're expected to be here when you need to be here. And I think the three day a week thing is, is just really hard to build culture. It's, it's hard to have the right level of collaboration, but we'll see. I, I think the companies that figure this out, that they'll rise to the top, you know, and, and that will determine where this all ends up. I'm not saying that there's, there can't be flexibility, um, but I just don't know if a prescribed three days a week works because I just, I, I, I hate to say it, I just wonder how much people are working on Fridays when when they're doing that. But setting that aside, the, the, the question about demand is an interesting one because as I've talked to the senior real estate folks at some large, you know, some of the bank companies and others, what they're struggling with is on the days where they want everyone in the office, they still need all those seats. So it's not entirely clear to them that they're going to have a big savings in space because that you know because there are days it's three days a week but it's more or less the same three days for everybody so they're not staggering people and i think staggering people defeats the whole purpose of collaboration and culture and everything else because then all you've got is 60 percent of your people in the office every day um so I, I do think people are looking for ways maybe to have more shared spaces you know more flex space things like that but you know in in some of the big names um, they're saying they don't necessarily see themselves taking less space. Um, it's just a question of, you know, how do they save some money in the margins by not being full and occupied? That said, you know, I've had a bunch of meetings in Seattle and other places where these folks are, and there, there have not been a lot of people sitting in cubicles when I've been there. So it's, it's not entirely clear where it ends up. Um, you know, Look, I, I think the big picture for office, though, is like I said, in New York, but it's true everywhere. There's winners and losers, right? Brand new, class A, highly amenitized buildings are attracting tenants and they're getting pretty good rents. I mean, all of our leasing, we've done, you know, six or 700,000 feet of leasing this year, all in brand new buildings, all taking tenants out of 20, 30 year old buildings, all paying more in rent, maybe taking a little bit less space in the trade off. But the conversations we're having, whether it's with corporate tenants or with law firms, is we need to do this to, to, to um, attract people back to the office. You know, we need to be in these great spaces with these great amenities to convince people to come back to work. So there's winners and losers for sure. Um, and, and then at the bottom of that winners and losers, there's a segment of the market that I don't think is ever coming back. Right. I, I think. I spoke to one of the CEOs of a large office company, it would be nameless, but said, you got to think about urban office as the new mall. You know, if you go back 10 years ago, we were talking about certain percentage of the mall, you know, inventory just needed to go away. And it has been, maybe not as quickly as we'd like, but 
even a 20% reduction in malls has seen significant recovery of those that remain. And I think, you know, in some of these CBDs, we probably need to look at 15, 20% of the space being repurposed in some way. Um, Cause I just, I don't know who's ever going back to, you know, a 60 year old building with hundred thousand square foot floor plates and eight foot ceilings and, you know, um, on, you know, seventh Avenue or third Avenue, you know, for example, right. Right. You know, and, um, and do you think that, um, I mean, I agree with everything you said about getting people back to the office, not back to work, back to the office, as I was corrected long ago um, <laughs> and the collaboration, the mentoring. I mean, we're, we're going to be, and it's all the, not just the law firms, obviously it's all the professional services business and, yeah. you know, you guys and Blackstone, you know, you, you, you had it right. I, I thought when you told people they had to come back um, and get yeah. in the office so that you, you could be better for your clients. But on your last point, so yeah, just like the malls, we used to say, right, we're not over-retailed in the U.S. We're under-demolished. Yeah. Under-demolished, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but do you see conversions to multifamily as being a viable, you know, path right. forward? Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite topics. I Look, I, I've always had a fascination with that concept for 15, 20 years. When, when I was a developer, Dean and I looked at a number of deals. And back in the day, it, they always broke down. I mean, some got done, but they, they often broke down because you couldn't get the last of the office tenants out of the building. You know, you'd have some 30,000 foot tenant that said, you know, give me 20 million bucks and I'll terminate my lease or whatever. You, you know, you could, you'd just, you'd walk away. Um, I think that's less of a problem today. I think you could probably empty the buildings out. There's one deal in New York happening right now that Dean and I had under had a, under contract at one point and dropped for that very reason. And now it's completely vacant and people are doing it. It's a wonderful building. But I think it's a really small subset, Jay, of, of solving the problem because you really have to have this confluence of it has to be the right size. It has to have the right floor plates. It has to have the right window lines or you have to have the ability to change those things. Like there's, we've seen a couple of deals on our debt side where people are trying to, you know, cool, um, put um, atriums, you know, cut out parts of the floor plate, create atriums. And then you question was, okay, does somebody really want an apartment facing an atrium in a 30 story building, right? So they tend to be smaller buildings, smaller floor plates, which New York has a huge inventory of. I mean, you know, you, we could walk around town and point our finger at 50 buildings that could be nice, residential conversions uh, but how much square footage do they actually add up to you know if you're talking about a market that might might have 20 million feet more than it needs like is there do we need 20 million feet of new residential uh i'm just throwing big numbers out i don't know if that's the right number but it, you know it's it's not going to solve the problem for you know, the 700,000 foot office building that's, that's struggling, you know? So then I think you start looking at land value, redevelopment plays, mixed use projects. I know several owners are already looking at what kind of incentives they could get to create new residential development. Um, you know, and then you certainly New York has a housing shortage. At what point does, how much can this, can they absorb even in that, right? Cause you've got this, and then the cities, are faced with the question, and this was in this article in Bloomberg today, um, the lost tax revenue. I think this thing estimated New York's lost like 12 billion a year in tax revenue right now. So you start converting 
office buildings that were paying big tax bills to residential development, which typically gets a 20 year tax abatement. Um, how does the city absorb that, that hit and continue to deliver services and, and deliver an environment that people want to live? So there's, I, I really think we're at the early days of a 10 year transformation of these urban markets. Yep. And, you know, I'm a big, I always tell people I never bet against New York, you know, and, you know, the same is probably true of San Francisco. It's, it's obviously much smaller, um, you, you know, but in Chicago and elsewhere. But I do think it's going to take time, just like it's taken 10 years for the mall to, to kind of reinvent itself. I think we're going to see 10 years of, of transformation. And people keep asking me, like, when's, when's the right time to make an office play? And um, Craig and I talk about it all the time. I, I just I don't know that we see it yet. You know, I don't know that there's enough clarity to figure out what that looks like yet. Um, but, you know, all that, I, I do always stop and say, I'm not anti-office because I do think there are num there are many examples of office buildings that are doing just fine right now. So you just really have to think of this layered approach to the office market and figure out that the, the top two or three layers will, will be okay. And then what do you do with the bottom layers? Okay. Look, I, I don't want to take too much of your time. We could talk for, I could continue talking yeah, for about yeah. four hours. Let me yeah, ask we you. Often, we often do. Yeah. Two, two last questions uh, before we let you go. Um, what is the best investment advice you ever got? Don't lose money. <laughs> I said this before. Yeah. I mean, think about every investment of how not to lose the money. Um, it sounds really silly, preservation, but, yeah, preservation of your principle. Yeah, preservation of principle. You, you know, because uh, there's lots. We can all convince ourselves we're smarter than everybody else, right? I always tell the team, like, the we're smarter than the last guy theory doesn't get you through investment committee, right? So we look at every deal uh, from a standpoint of what are the what do we how do we have to beat up the assumptions to solve to a one multiple, and, and is that you know, do we feel really comfortable that things will not get that bad, right? That's that's kind of our starting point. And I, I just think that's a great way to, to look at investing. And, and yep. then from there, um, you build on that. And, um, it, you know, but I think, and then I, you know, I think generally speaking, the, the thing that we pride ourselves on is thinking about what's coming next, you know, you know and, and being able to, willing to walk away from certain things be a seller uh, when it's the right time to be a seller and, and think about where you want to be investing next. Okay. Last question. So you, you've dealt with lots of professional services folks, including plenty of real estate lawyers and including our good mutual friend, Steve Waters, who was president of the college yeah. right after me. So we That's get to work together. Yeah. What, what advice, if we asked you to post, you know, like a slide at our next meeting, um, what advice would you give a room full of um, top real estate lawyers in the country? Well, that's dangerous to begin with. So I, I, don't, I don't know that I should be giving advice to that group. But um, no, look, I think you, you're, you're and uh, you and Steve figured this out a long time ago, right? It's one, when I think of law firm, great, the great lawyers I've worked with over the years, it's one 
helping me avoid bullets that are coming at my head, right? Be, be my eyes and ears to, to tell me where I'm exposing myself to risk or where things could, could go wrong, right? I think that's first and foremost. And then it's followed closely. What I, what I love in a great, whether it's a lawyer or a broker or whatever is, how can I help you grow your business? Like, what can I do? Who can I introduce you to? What, what are you trying to do? Understand my business enough to, to, to make connections for us. Um, and, and, and as opposed to just, you know, sort of selling services. Um, and I think if I was, um, if you ask me that question about brokers, I would reverse the order probably, right? I, I think I'd reverse the order and say, help me grow my business and point out the risks to me um, where I think I start with the risk piece. Again, don't lose capital, right? So a great lawyer can help me make sure I don't lose capital by missing something big in due diligence or in, in the legal side or the zoning side or something. Right. Well, and this was, this has just been terrific. Um, your, your insights will be um, of great value to this audience. Um, and I know people will be very appreciative of the time you spent. So thank oh, you very fun. much. It's great to see you. Thanks, Len. Thanks, Jay.